Father, we sit and stand and bow before you, whether physically or in our hearts. We turn to you and ask for your wisdom this morning, which we know you will deliver according to your word without finding fault. We pray for wisdom in the area of doctrine and knowing your word and how to communicate it to others and how it might be effective in our own lives. I thank you for Paul, Lord, who wrote so diligently and was faithful to the things that you personally taught him. We would ask, Lord, that as we read the scriptures, you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. About 500 years ago, in 1505, a young man who was 21 years old was caught in a massive thunderstorm on his way home from law school. He was so frightened by the tempest that, being a Catholic, he called out to St. Anne and made a deal. He gave an oath that if she would spare his life, he would become a monk. Fifteen days after he returned, he left law school, months to the consternation of his father, and entered a monastery. And for the next five years, he became guilt-obsessed and tried everything in his power to earn the favor of God. He was fanatical in his pursuits of the sacraments. Sacraments in the Catholic Church are baptism, confirmation, communion, confession, holy orders, anointing the sick, and marriage. And so he would perform these for others. He would also fast often. He would deny himself sleep. He would endure the winter cold without blankets. And he would even go so far as to whip himself with what is also known as a flagellum. Now, Daryl has a picture of what the flagellum is. And this is what the Romans would use. And you can see, I chose this particular picture because somebody decided to draw it out and actually name all the parts on there from the wooden handle to the leather grip. It's also called a flagrum. And of course you have the leather thongs that come off of there, but they would have these real sharp uh, bone shards. In this particular case, they wrote down sheep bone shards. And these leather sp- or le- uh, lead spires be very, very sharp. And it, it had three of these cords that would come down. And, of course, the end would be weighted with lead. Some of these actually had spikes coming out of the lead at the end of these little leather thongs. And Martin Luther would take it in the handle and he would whip his back. He would rush it over the back of his shoulders. And as hard as he could, he would beat himself until he was bloody. Uh, He would later say, and of course this is Martin Luther, like I just said, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. And that's what he wrote. And to those who were his elders, they were greatly concerned that he was being extreme in his questioning of his salvation. And no matter what this young monk did to earn the favor of God through his own personal sacrifice and works, he knew that he was failing because he was constantly aware of his sin. And to put it simply, he was trying to earn his righteousness. Now, his dilemma was recognized, that he recognized was God's standard, which is perfection. 
And he would always fall short of that. He was so inwardly focused and he felt so bad all of the time that he tried to do good works all the time. And as a result of his own dejection and anguish, he poured himself more deeply into the monastic life. He tried to do even more and more and more until in 1510, he decided maybe a way out would be to visit Rome. So he set off on a journey And when he arrived in Rome, he did some of the standard things that monks would do, visited some of the graves of the former saints that had gone on before him. He would uh, dive himself into the monastic rituals which were there in the Catholic life, and he found himself becoming even more and more bereaved. Because when he viewed the Pope, the cardinals, and the priest, and the levity that they had, He was filled with disillusionment and disappointment. Excuse me. And he recognized that there was this exploitation, greed, depravity, and fraud that was being committed by all of these leaders in the church. He went on to write later that Rome once was the holiest city and now the worst. Uh, Later he openly defied the pope even calling him the Antichrist while also denouncing the cardinals who were in Rome. About four years after this trip to Rome, Martin Luther had a transformation in his thinking. He trusted God's word and specifically Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2, which reads, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also... We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So justification by grace through faith in Christ transformed Martin Luther's way of viewing the scriptures. And he was able to take the law and say, I could never fulfill the law. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. That's how we are justified. Now, according to the Council of Trent, that was in 1563, that's when it ended, the Catholic Church, even to this day, denounces justification by faith. You cannot be saved simply by believing. It is called anathema or cursed. And anybody who is cursed is in danger of being excommunicated from the church. You cannot be a priest and believe in justification by faith. He was also teaching that observing the law in order to obtain righteousness or justification. This is Paul. That's what Paul was teaching. And justification by faith is exactly what he was communicating in the letter he wrote to the Galatian church. But again, the opposite is true. Observing the law to obtain righteousness and justification is completely impossible. And this is what virtually every other religion in the world teaches, that you have to do something in order to appease whether one God or many gods. Uh, In our trips over to Cambodia and Vietnam, you would see a little spirit house almost at every single house and in every restaurant for sure. And these little spirit houses, and by the way, you would um, drive down the road and there would be these markets or these little stores, usually the front of a house, that they would make these so you could purchase them and you could stick them either in your business or at your house. And inside, they, they would be ornately painted and there'd be little sacrifices there. There'd be incense burning. There'd be little candles burning. There would be little offerings of food that would be there. Maybe some coins would be there. And it was to appease the house spirit, so to speak. You have 
to do this. And if you don't do this, then you don't get rewarded or you don't receive the blessing. And so there's this idea, at least over in that area of the world, as well as in India, that you have to appease these gods in order to have a safe and prosperous life. Now, Christianity teaches us that we can do nothing to be declared right before God, but all the other religions state that you have to do something to be accepted by God. We simply teach that we must believe that Jesus died for our sins and that God raised him from the dead. Any other belief is foolishness, according to the word of God, which takes us to chapter 3, verse 1. Galatians 3, 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. So he's, he's calling into question why Jesus had to be crucified. And if you know your theology, if you reflect back on that, the Galatians would have known some of this theology. They would have remembered why Jesus had to be crucified for our sins. Well, why wasn't the Old Testament system of the atonement for sins sufficient? Well, he's asking, why did Christ have to die then? What's the purpose of that? He goes on in verse 2. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? And of course, every believer receives the Holy Spirit of God upon conversion, upon accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. And there are several examples of this, at least three, in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, you can just write down the addresses and I'll read them to you. If you remember the first one, was on the day of Pentecost when all the disciples were gathered in one place and it goes on to say in chapter 2 verse 2 suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them the second reference here is in Acts chapter 10 where Peter went to the house of Cornelius. Of course, that was forbidden for a Jew to go be with a Gentile. It was, he was a centurion, but the Lord told him, you make sure you go. Somebody's going to come. And Cornelius had a vision before that where he needed to go and get Peter and have him explain the gospel to him. And Peter, while he was still speaking these words, according to Acts chapter 10, verse 44, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message didn't say all who were working for the gospel. It's all those who heard the message. And also in Acts chapter 19, there were some apostles of, or excuse me, um, disciples of John. And <clears throat> Paul showed up there and he asked them when he saw them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we had not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? And they said, John's baptism. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So they weren't doing anything. They weren't trying to seek after God's favor. They were simply listening to the message that was delivered. That's how we receive salvation, is paying attention to the gospel and receiving it ourselves. He goes on to say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, 
Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? And of course, this would immediately take somebody in their mind to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. And so there is nothing we can do. Again, I'm, I'm being redundant here, but I'm trying to get across the point. There's nothing that we can do in human effort to obtain the favor of God. Verse 4 says, Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it is really, if it really was for nothing, and the suffering was coming through the persecution of the Christians even by the Jews. And it was coming to them, but when the Judaizers showed up, the Judaizers said, Oh, just keep the law and everything will be fine. He goes on to say in verse 5, Does God give you his spirit? And work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard. Now, twice in five verses, Paul's making the case that one receives the Holy Spirit simply by hearing the message and not by doing. And then he goes on to make three appeals as he's making his case. He's kind of uh, making a philosophical argument here. He appeals to Abraham, uh, to the history of the Jews, and also to contemporary law and society. And the first one here is Abraham. Consider Abraham, verse 6. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Now, I need to clarify something here, because there is a doctrine of replacement theology which is out there. And a distinction needs to be made between what we teach here and what those usually of the Reformed uh, category teach as replacement theology. It teaches that the church has replaced Israel in God's plans, prophecies, and blessings. Those who hold to this view do not interpret Scripture literally. They usually go to... uh, a symbolic interpretation or uh, they come up with allegorical interpretations and they believe that the Jews have been supplanted by the Christians. So whatever promises were delivered to the Jews, it has now been transferred to those who are Christians. The only problem I have with that or one of several problems I have with that, what about the curses? If you don't follow what the Jews were told to do, don't you get the curses as well. Remember, they were exiled twice because of their disobedience. Remember all the plagues that they had to endure because they were disobedient? Why don't we get those? How can we just get the promises and the blessings? <clears throat> of course, I've never heard anybody answer that one, but uh, if I would love to hear it. The opposing view to this replacement theology is dispensationalism. Dispensationalism holds to uh, there is a distinction between Israel and the church. That God has a plan for Israel. He gave it to Abraham, and that is never going to change. It is going to be fulfilled, and he has a separate plan for the church. Also, dispensationalists, which I am one, interpret the Scripture literally when it comes to the narrative reading of the Scripture. And you have to understand uh, what is the difference between narrative and poetry, and uh, there's all types. There's over... 200 different types of speech that we could uh, refer to or use inside of a text. And you have to know when somebody is just speaking to you plainly, as an example again, a narrative, they're just telling you a story, they're giving you information. And 
the people who are the replacement theologians, they would say, well, no, that's not exactly what that means. Uh, one guy I like listening to <clears throat> on um, the podcast on YouTube, it's called The Bible Project. And he does a really, really good job about giving summaries on the books of the Bible. It's an excellent job on that. But when it comes to the interpretation of the book of Revelation, or when it comes to eschatology, I don't think he could be farther off. And he's the nicest guy. He explains things so well. But that particular part of his theology, you can tell he probably comes from a Reformed bent. Now, going on with this, verse 8, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do, and here you should put air quotes there, everything written in the book of the law. <clears throat> and I just went back, I, I did a, a small search, and I did this a little bit last week too, but there were certain things that would cause you to be cut off from your people uh, if you're an Israelite. That if you didn't follow these certain things, you could no longer be in fellowship with the Israelites. You couldn't go to the temple. They, they would shun you and say, you know, anathema, you were cursed, and just be done with you. Now some of these things, like Genesis chapter 17, verse 14, circumcision now Abraham did this by faith before the law came 430 years later but all the Jews they and Abraham was the first Jew all the Jews practiced circumcision and if you didn't you were cut off from your people Exodus 30 38 if you make the perfume that is to be used in the tabernacle or later in the temple if you made that and used it for yourself you were to be cut off from your people. It was exclusively for God. And the, the irony of this is you can go to Israel today and you can buy the perfume. You go into the little stores that they have there. This is the, and they will tell you, this is the exact perfume that was used in the Old Testament in the temple sacrifice. And you're going, but I thought you're not supposed to make that and have that. And they're Jews. Sometimes you go to the Arab sections as well and they'll have that. But if you made the perfume and you used it for yourself, you're to be cut off. You're to have nothing more to do with your people. Exodus thirty-one fourteen. Anyone who works on Saturday, if you go and work on Saturday, that's it. You're to be cut off from your people. Of course, I've talked about this one on at least two occasions. Leviticus seventeen seven. Anyone who eats blood, no blood sausage for you. Leviticus twenty-five verse thirty-seven. If you lend money to somebody who is a fellow believer as an Israelite, you were never to charge them interest. You were only to give them the money, and if they paid you back, great. And of course, in the New Testament, we know if you give money to someone, don't expect to be repaid. Uh, that's how we're supposed to do it. But if you charged interest and you were a Jew, then you were to be cut off from your people. Uh, failure to observe the Passover. If you didn't follow the Passover, you were to be cut off from your people. And just... By the way, I was listening to some other messages, and I, I found this out. I, I kind of knew it, but I didn't realize the significance of it. Do you know that Easter Sunday never falls on Passover? When was Jesus crucified? On Passover. Why does Easter Sunday never coincide 
with Passover? Well, I did a search. From 2000 to 2050, there is not one Easter Sunday that coincides with Passover. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why is that? And I heard a message that dealt with this. In the beginning of the church, the church was so anti-Semitic that they didn't want anything overlapping on a day that the Jews celebrate anything, any festival at all. So they changed it a couple of times, and they finally come up with a formula. They had finally come up with a formula where Easter Sunday will never coincide with Passover. And Passover is on the 14th of Nisan, and that usually coincides with the time for us in April. Occasionally it's in March, but usually it's in April. But the Christian church came up with this formula on purpose so that it would not coincide with the Jewish festival of Passover. And I just thought that that was interesting. And today we still celebrate that. So when we meet on Resurrection Sunday, it's always a Sunday. Passover does not always fall on a Sunday according to the Jewish calendars. I read some areas where it's like on a Tuesday. But it's this idea that, well, Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week. And if we were really true to what uh, the Jewish calendar was, we would celebrate it right after Passover. But we don't. It's just like Christmas. Jesus was not born on Christmas. Well, Jesus did not rise on the day that we celebrate the resurrection. He rose on the day after Passover. I thought that was just a little tidbit that you might want to take away and investigate for yourself. Then Numbers chapter 15, verse 30. Anyone who blasphemes God or takes God's name in vain, you're to be cut off from your people. Uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of anybody who has ever blasphemed God, but uh, you get the idea. Everyone should be cut off that has blasphemed God. And then Paul here, secondly, makes an appeal to history after he makes an appeal to Father Abraham. Verse 11, he says, Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now normally the death penalty for all Israelites, would be stoning. The, the whole community would get together and they'd grab rocks and there would be a designated guy with a big rock to do the final deed, but everybody would pile up rocks on the individual. Remember, Paul was stoned and left for dead. And occasionally after that, so the person would be an example to the tired community of the Jews, they would take the dead body and they would hang the dead body on a pole. And sometimes it would just be a straight-up pole. Sometimes it would be like a pole with a patibulum up on top, a, a cross member. And they would hang the body up there. And it could only hang up there until the evening to where it had to be taken down. Now, this is reported for us in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. If a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree... You must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. 
Now, this really is a reflection of something else that happened later. And when it happened, it was a foreshadowing of a future event, and they would not have known what this was actually to signify. And, of course, this is the bronze snake that was placed upon a pole. This is in Numbers chapter 21, and it talks about the disobedience of the Israelites. And so the Lord sent a plague of snakes, venomous snakes, to bite the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, verse 8 of chapter 21, Numbers, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and he put it on a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now for some people of the world, they say, well, it was magic or it's just fanciful thinking that this would actually work. This was supposed to point to the future event of Jesus hanging on the pole, hanging on the cross. If you ask a Jehovah Witness, they would say, it's not even a cross, it's a stake. And then other people would say, well, the St. Andrew's cross is what they use. And that's a kind of like a cross that's kind of tilted to the side where it goes this way and that way, where it goes up at an angle and down at an angle. And so there's this whole debate. I don't care what kind of debate you want to go into. Jesus was on a piece of wood, which would make him accursed. Now, if you looked at in the Old Testament, there's some depictions of what this particular bronze snake looked like. There is the pole that medical uh, people use as a symbol. Uh, it's a pole, and it has a snake wrapped around it. That's one of the symbols. Another one is there's two snakes wrapped around it. Another one is that you have a pole with a cross member, and the snake is draped over the cross member or the patibulum. Whatever you want to use as your example, Jesus became a curse for us. It was foreshadowed in Numbers chapter 21, verse 8, and Deuteronomy chapter 20, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy 21 and Numbers 21, that Jesus would be, in fact, that thing which had become a curse. Of course, that's where he takes our sin, the punishment, and that's why God placed the curse that was meant for us on him. So then he makes a appeal to contemporary law and society but after verse 14 digressing a little bit this is the third time he says that we receive the spirit of god by believing and not by doing remember verse 14 if you refer back to that he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to abraham might come to the gentiles through christ jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the spirit so three times how many times do you have to tell your kids to do something your grandkids no, 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 to get the point across. He's trying to get to the point across that we receive the Spirit of God, salvation, that's how we have salvation, by believing and not by doing. So again, he makes an appeal to contemporary law and society. Verse 15, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Now he's probably referring to Greek or Roman law here, that once you made a covenant or a contract, you could not just arbitrarily go and say, it's canceled. I'm, I'm not going to follow through with it. You're, we're done. I'm, I'm not, no longer to live up, or going to live up to my end of the bargain that we established. And Paul is making reference to the legality of the culture, the law in the culture. Same thing applies today. If you sign for something, if you, 
For instance, if you co-sign for something, guess who's going to be responsible for paying it off if the main signator on the contract decides not to pay? They're going to come after you if you co-sign. And Scripture says, and I believe it's the book of Proverbs, that we are not to co-sign for anything. I remember uh, there were two family members in my family, and one asked the other to co-sign to rent a storage garage because he was having a, a problem at that time. And the other uh, individual, who was a believer, said no. And it erupted in a big fight uh, between the two individuals because the other one was trying to follow Scripture. And so it tells us, don't do that. Now, might you co-sign for a car loan for your child? Scripture says, don't do it, but if you choose to do it, well, go ahead and be prepared to suffer consequences if consequences come. But the counsel is don't. So he makes this case. You can't just cancel a covenant or a contract or a legal document. And this covenant that God made with Abraham, it still stands to this day. That's why I don't agree with this replacement theology based on the book of Galatians here. The Jews have not been supplanted by the Christians. Verse 16 goes on to enlighten us a little more. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to his seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law was introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. So Abraham's promise still stands and the law does not negate that. So the promise that he will be blessed because through his lineage, Christ will arise and that's by a promise, not by keeping the law which was established uh, 100 or 400 years later. Now, a mediator, however, does not represent just one party. Excuse me, I need to back up. Verse 19. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. And of course, that would have been Moses. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So this is the purpose of, of the law it explains it a little more in verse 23 and 24 before this faith came we were held prisoners by the law locked up until faith should be revealed so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that's it that's why we were given the law <clears throat> now when rules and regulations are established for us in society it's for our benefit and if we break those laws we suffer the consequences And there's really no reprieve unless the judge says, I'm going to have mercy on you. For your own children or grandchildren, you establish certain rules and regulations. And if they violate those inside of your household, there usually is going to be a problem. If 
you establish no rules or regulations, there's still going to be a problem, probably lawlessness. I read one little post, and this post said, a child uh, who is six years old is playing video games for about eight hours a day. And somebody said, I'm going to rewrite this. The parents allow their six-year-old to play video games for eight hours a day. It was the parent's fault that the child who is six years old is playing the video games. And so if we impose nothing, what's going to happen? Bad behavior is going to result. You don't have to train the child to be bad. You train the child to be good. You don't have to train individuals to be bad. You have to force them to be good. There has to be consequences for actions. As a parent, we allow the consequences to come to actions. My son just reminded me of something that I did when he was a teenager that I let him work it out himself. And it was him and his buddy, uh, Jeff. Uh, and he was... 16 or 17 years old him and his buddy Jeff they decided to go shark fishing and shark fishing on a boat in the middle of the night some cattle boat down at I don't know Seaforth or Islandia or one of them and they got on this boat and they came back and he realized that he had locked his keys in his car so what did he do he called me and it was like three o'clock in the morning and goes, dad, I locked my keys in my car. Can you come bail me out? Can you, can you come unlock the car? And he reminded me what I told him. I said, no, deal with it. And he did. He de- He dealt with it. He said he started looking. He, he couldn't believe that I would do that, you know, to him. But then he looked in a trash can, he found a hanger, he jury-rigged the the door, and he was able to get it going. So he worked it out. I I let the consequences come for him. Now, I was dead tired, and I wasn't going to get out of bed, and I I fell fast asleep again. I think Patty kind of looked at me like, really? Yeah, that's, that's what I did. End of story. And he worked it out. But we have to let the consequences come in order to correct behavior. That's what God did for us. The only problem was with the law, when he told us we violated it, the only remedy was a sacrifice. And if there wasn't a sacrifice, then there was no remedy. But Jesus came along, and he was the remedy for all of that. And there was no longer any guilt or stain associated with the sin, where in the Old Testament, it always remained. It was never taken away. And the burden became so egregious, so onerous, so heavy, it was difficult for the people to carry it. That's why the law was given, because then people would turn to God and say, God, what am I going to do? How do I get out from under this? There is no possible way. But Abraham understood it. It's the Jews who were under the law that failed to understand what was supposed to happen. So the law, verse 24, was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now the faith has come, or when faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So the law points out how great of sinners we are. The law does not abolish our sin, but simply buys us time. Every time you sin, you have to go have a sacrifice. Every time you give a sacrifice, as soon as you leave, you probably sin again. 
and you have to go back and make another sacrifice. It never ends. It is perpetual. And this law was a ruthless taskmaster. And there were certain times a year that everybody had to bring a sacrifice no matter what. But you would also bring sacrifices for your own personal sins or offerings, whatever you decided to do. But it was onerous. It was difficult. It was heavy. It was burdensome. So whenever there was a a sin in the law or sin under the law, the law would come back and point to all the Jews and everyone else in the world and say, guilty with capital letters and exclamation points. And that guilt is what they would carry. Now, we know that these sacrifices never take away the guilt of sin. But Christ's sacrifice did. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilt for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. He's referring to Yom Kippur. Because it is impossible for the blood and bulls, the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the sin still remained. Remember the atonement simply meant covering It did not remove the sin. It just covered it over where when God would look at the person bringing the sacrifice, he'd say, okay, it's accepted, but the sin, the stain still remains. When we're in Christ, that cover is thrown off, the sin is wiped away, and the slate is wiped clean. That's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, this is what Martin Luther was struggling with, the story that I told you in the beginning. He would see that his sin was ever before him. He could not get rid of it, and he was not able to remain righteous before God in his eyes. He didn't understand the gospel. But that's why he took the flagellum or the flagrum, and he would beat his back. He tried to do, he'd starve himself in the fasting. I remember seeing the movie in seminary of him and his life, his old black and white uh, flick uh, that they showed us. And, you know, it's enlightening to see what he did. He just, he couldn't get out of the weight of this sin and guilt. And especially that's what the Catholic Church taught. You're not saved by faith. So it was quite the dilemma for him. Now, the dilemma or the remedy for this sin, we realize in verse 26. And it says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you all, or excuse me, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, not that I would agree with every one of the doctrines that Martin Luther left us. But he did leave us four things that I think are important. I don't know if you've heard these words in Latin before, but they are sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, which means 
A sinner is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, for the sake of Christ alone, a truth revealed to us in Scripture alone. And I like that. Even though I don't agree with the Reformed theology, I like what he had to say here. And that's how we are saved. There's no, it's not a gospel plus something. It's not Jesus plus something. It is simply Jesus Christ and believing in him. Have you guys ever heard the phrase, pound of flesh? Now, most of us, I think, have. This comes from the 18th century writer William Shakespeare in his play, The Merchant of Venice. And what it refers to is a lawful but unreasonable repayment of a debt that is owed. And if somebody says, well, I'm going to extract my pound of flesh out of you, and it could be like the uh, credit card companies, they charge 21%, they're going to get their pound of flesh. And you can declare bankruptcy and all that, and it kind of ruins your credit for a long time to come. But they're going to get it from you, and they're going to come retrieve whatever they want to. Or the IRS, they're great at extracting a pound of flesh. And when he wrote this pound of flesh, it's like, give me a pound of your body. I want the pound. I want it to hurt. I want to take it from you. Well, there was this movie. This movie called, maybe you're familiar with it, Seven Pounds. It was a uh, PG-rated movie. It starred Will Smith. In it, Will Smith was driving a vehicle, and he was texting while driving, and he ended up causing an accident that took seven lives. Because of this, his guilt was tremendous. He couldn't bear up under the weight of the guilt, so he made a plan. And in this plan, what he decided to do, and it's called seven pounds because seven people had lost their lives because he was texting. And so what he did is he stole his brother's federal IRS tag, his identification, and he became his brother. And under the guise of being an IRS agent, he would interview different people to see if they were good or if they were bad. And the people that he found that were in need of help, he decided to assist them by giving a pound of his flesh for each person. In one case, he gave part of a liver uh, so that somebody might survive. Another case gave part of a lung so that somebody would survive. And one of the people that he was going to help, he fell in love with. And she needed a heart. And so what he did was he kept as a pet a box jellyfish. And this box jellyfish, and he was working through his plan, and even though he fell deeply in love with this woman, he ended up committing suicide by allowing the box jellyfish to sting him. He placed his body in a tub of ice, and then he donated his eyes and his heart, eyes to somebody who was blind, and his heart to the girlfriend. And the reason he did this is because he could not bear up under the guilt. Now, just because we all sin, now in that particular movie, it's a sad movie. But in that particular movie, he did not understand what the grace of God was. That even though we are sinners and we can be saved by grace, there are people who never discover that or they choose to ignore it, I should more accurately say. 
And maybe that's where you might be, where you are bearing up under a tremendous load of guilt that you cannot move forward, that you feel you are disqualified in some way, that the sin you have, you need to take the flagrum or the flagellum and beat yourself on the back. You need to fast more. You need to give more. You need to do more good works. And you feel if by doing that, the guilt of sin will be taken away. If that's how you are operating, the guilt will never leave you. It is only by Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that he will take away that particular guilt. Maybe it's relationship. Maybe you wronged somebody in the past. All of these things may be true. Maybe it was taking of a life or maybe it was an abortion or something along those lines. God removes that guilt from us completely. If we know that he does that and we take it upon ourselves again and we weigh it down that's just the weigh ourselves down that's just the enemy coming along saying you are not worthy look at all that you have done in the past and that is just the enemy lying to us now i don't know about you but uh, when i'm just contemplating something driving down the road giving my thoughts towards spiritual things all of a sudden a thought will come in of what I've done in my past and how I said things that I should not have said, how I did acts that I should not have committed, all of those things. And the enemy just says, see, what are you doing telling those people about God? You are so unworthy. And I just say, well, it's not my problem. It's the problem of Jesus Christ. Take it up with him. He's my attorney. He's my lawyer. He's the one that will intercede for me. And so that's the only way that I can survive. And I'm sure you were just like me. You think of all these things that you have done that are just maybe reprehensible or shameful. God has a way of taking away the sin. Although the consequences may remain with us in this life, the the consequence of the death that is due us has been taken away. So we know that this is only possible by accepting the salvation that is offered to us in Jesus And this is received or apprehended by believing and confessing that Jesus is the Christ, that he is Lord, and that he rose from the dead and is able to forgive all our sins. If you wanted to condense it down into a nutshell, this is Acts chapter 13, verses 30 and 31. Just believe. That's what it is. That's what it says to do in the book of Acts chapter 16. And that is all-encompassing. God knows what it is that we need to say to him to be saved or what it is we need to believe in our hearts. And, you know, we'll have these altar calls and people are being led into prayer and that's all good and that's all wonderful. But somebody who can't hold all the theology, juggle it in their hands, all they have to say is, Jesus, save me. Jesus, I believe in you. And that's it. Now, what we're going to do to remember this is we're going to receive communion. And communion is for those who have confessed Jesus as the Lord and Savior, who have believed in him. And we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made, as we just read in the book of Galatians here, chapter 3. Jesus went to the cross for us. That's why he was crucified. And so the worship team is going to come up, and they are going to sing a song And as that song is being sung, if there's anything that you need to uh, confess to Christ, go ahead and confess it. If there's guilt that is weighing you down, he can take that guilt and remove it. 
Maybe the guilt just accumulated from yesterday. And God will take that away. Uh, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, First John 1, 9 says, if we simply confess them. And so when they start playing, give yourself a minute. And the way that we want to do this is start from the front rows and work to the back. And you can just walk up and you can grab one of the communion cups with the bread on top. Go back to your seat around the outside and go back to your own seat and sit down. Hold on to the cup and the bread until we can all participate in receiving this together. And while the song's being sung, if we could have the center lights turned off, that would be great. <laughs> 